Let's pray together. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would hear your words, open our hearts that we might see wonderful things in your words and shape our hearts and minds to honor and glorify your Son, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, on June the 6th, 1944, more than 150,000 American, British, and Canadian troops landed on the shores of northern France as part of D-Day. It was called the longest day, but the day was to be the major turning point in World War II, securing the defeats of the Nazis through Europe. Landing on that day was a 23-year-old army medic called Ray Lambert from Alabama, and he was in the front of one of the landing crafts. He's now 100, just like Stan, living over in North Carolina. And he spoke of the terror he felt. The horror that day began well before. You could hear the bullets, he said. Every infantryman's worst nightmare. The sea, he said, was red with blood. The screams, the sound of machine gun fire. And soon after landing, shrapnel pierced through his thigh. As he was working to save another soldier, the two were pinned down. A ramp on the boat hit them. He described how he prayed desperately. I asked God to give me one more chance to save this guy's life, he said. An interviewer in the newspaper said, you didn't pray for your own life? He answered, I was thinking of the guy in front of me. Miraculously, he was pulled off the beach. Lambert saved the man, but his own back was broken. He dragged himself ashore, looking down the beach before losing consciousness. He said, we knew that it was either a do or die situation. He went on to write a book. It's called Every Man a Hero. You can get it from Amazon later on today. But the agony of what happened on that beach 75 years ago is still raw, he says. It was a horrifying liberation in the face of overwhelming terror and it's the story of extreme self-sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice possible. And this morning, as we think of Stan and that story and turn to Psalm 22, that's the picture, isn't it? And as we take the Lord's Supper, that's the picture, isn't it? A great liberation in the face of an extreme, overwhelming terror as we turn to Psalm 22, a psalm of agonizing lament. Just a warning. We're on holy ground this morning as we turn to Psalm 22, and here's why. This psalm is probably the clearest, most passionate, most raw of all of the psalms, and is a window into the agony of Jesus as he died at Calvary because of his love for you. It's a psalm that falls into two parts. Here's the first. The agony of the cross, verses 1 to 31, as the Lord abandons his king. Because the psalm opens with a cry of utter anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and the words of my groaning? There's a problem as we open this psalm. 
And the problem is that we've heard it all before. It sounds so familiar. We've been desensitized and numb to it. We feel we understand it, but you don't. This is the most pained prayer in the whole of the Bible. Here is the cry of a man who has been abandoned and who is about to be destroyed. And the urgency of the prayer is underlined in the repetition, my God, my God. And the emotion ratchets up in the repetition of my, my, and me. And the tense of the verb abandoned implies this is in the past tense. The abandonment is total and complete. There's no way back for this man. And the desperation is clear from verse 2 as his cry is continual, as he pleads with the Lord by day and by night. I cry to you day and night, but you don't answer, and I don't find rest. It's not the cry of despair, but of faith, but it's a man completely disorientated, and there's incomprehension as he cries out, why? For the essence of the agony is that this Lord is far away. And to underline it, the horror of verse 11 functions as the center part of the cry. And the whole of the psalm builds up to verse 11 and then follows on from it. The poetry is very clever. There are 73 Hebrew words building up to verse 11. And then 73 Hebrew words following on from verse 11. So verse 11 is the center point of the cry. It's the epicenter of the agony. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. This is raw. This is emotional. This is a man begging for his life, crying out to God for help. I think it was about four years ago when one of our kids had breathing difficulties in the middle of the night. That's pretty scary for a parent when your kid says, I can't breathe. So we called the British equivalent of 911, it's called 999, and there was an answer. It was extraordinary. Within about four or five minutes, three separate ambulance crews arrived at our door. One, two, then three. Our cry, it was actually New Year's Eve, it was a great way to start the year, our cry, New Year's Eve 2018, was more than answered in our desperate plights. But here it's as if God refuses to pick up, as if God hangs up on this man. And the heart of the agony is that Yahweh is not with him. It's underlined in two ways in verses 2 to 5. There is complete silence. Oh God, I cry, but you don't answer. And then in verse 6, there's complete inaction. And both the silence and the inaction is horrific, especially in verse 5, as this man has like a dramatic flashback to the past, a bit like a BBC drama. In verse 5, there's a flashback. A flashback to how Yahweh has always answered the great men of the past. Think of Isaac or Jacob or Abraham. He's always answered the fathers. And second in verse 9, a flashback to his own birth, one of the most dangerous experiences in life. 
Look how God delivered him in the great danger of birth, verse 9. You took me from the womb and you made me trust at my mother's breast, verse 10. On you I was cast and you have been my God. But neither of these flashbacks is comforting. God's answered the prayer of the fathers and he's looked after him since birth. But now, now, silence in action from heaven. But the full shock and scandal of this psalm only really begins to emerge when you discover who's praying it. Because this is not an ordinary believer, but it's David's. So who's David? He's the anointed king. He's the one that's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's actually the Messiah in 2 Samuel 7, to whom the promise of God's constant presence and power has been given. So here is the anointed king. Here is God's king on earth, anointed by the spirits, the representative of the covenants, the one to whom in 2 Samuel 7 God promised, I will give you rest from all your enemies, and I will establish your throne forever, and I will be a father, and you will be my son. Here is the king, anointed by God, abandoned by God, forsaken. This is seismic. This is cataclysmic. It's unthinkable, unconscionable. It's actually theologically impossible. Because the anointed king stands as the representative of the whole nation. So if the king is being abandoned, then the nation is being abandoned. Then God has broken his covenant promise. Then God is unfaithful and can no longer be, be trusted. This psalm is horrific. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The anointed king, your representative on earth. Theologically impossible and emotionally unbearable because in verse 12 to 21, the full terror is laid before us. I am a worm and not a man. Without doubt, the worst film, movie, I have ever seen in my life was Schindler's List. We were on vacation. The kids were in bed. It was there in the house we were staying in, and I said to Sarah, shall we watch it? I soon realized that was a mistake. Three long, agonizing, harrowing hours set in the Krakow concentration camp, telling the story of Oskar Schindler in 1939. He was a businessman, wanted to make some money during the Second World War. He joined the Nazi party. He was politically expedient. And he starts staffing his factory with Jews. Soon the SS begin exterminating Jews in the ghettos. And then Armand Guth, played by Ralph Fiennes, this snarling, sadistic SS officer, comes in to oversee this camp. We watch as he wakes up in the morning and over a coffee takes pot shots from his balcony with his gun, his mission to liquidate the Jews. And then comes the haunting, there's no word for it, sight of the girl in the red coats in the black and white picture 
representing the innocence of the Jews being slaughtered. And then we see the terrible sight of the ash falling like snow across Krakow. The ash from the mass grave, from the ferocious Auschwitz chimney. In interviews, Spielberg, who made the movie, discussed certain incidents that happened and they were too obscene to put in the film. But the most grueling scene of all, surely, is the attempted murder of the rabbi, thwarted by the jammed mechanism of Guth's pistol as he tries to fire but can't quite because it's locked. The whole thing is just a window into hell. But the real window into hell is Psalm 22. For as the suffering ratchets up, we discover that it's not really David's song, is it? But Jesus' song. Here is the agony of abandonment. Here is the perfect Messiah King. And here's what he discovered, verse 6, a worm and not a man, a worm. The picture here is of dehumanization. He's been reduced from a king to a man and a, from a man to a worm. And what happens to a worm? What does a five, six-year-old boy do to a worm? Picks it up, the writhing worm, snaps it in half, stamps it underfoot. That's the picture here. He was mocked and scorned, despised and rejected. This is actually a torture scene where an Abu Ghraib the enemies are depicted in the most powerful and violent terms, predators. Look at verse 12. They're bulls, bulls the emblem of strength as they gore and trample, but not any bulls. These are the bulls of Bashan, known uh, for the fertility of the pastures, the strongest bulls in the lands. We might say raised somewhere in Texas. Bulls, verse 12, Verse 13, we move to the Serengeti. Lions, they open wide their mouths for me as ravening and roaring lions, fangs ready, mouths gaping, ready to tear their prey limb from limb. And if that's not grisly enough, verse 20, they are a pack of dogs. The dogs here are not the little poodles that we have at home but the filthy, rabid, feral, unclean mongrels for the Jew. The dog stood as the picture of the ultimate unclean animal. The power of the dog, the mouth of the lion, the horns of the bull. This man is like prey, like a piece of meat being devoured or a loaf of bread being broken. And it's desperate, verse 9, as he cries for help. You, O Lord, don't be far off. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the power of the lion. But God doesn't answer. Here is the forsakenness of Calvary. Here is the cross of Golgotha. Verse 14, he's like water being poured out of the bottle, expended. Verse 14, he's like wax on the fire, uh, a chips packet or a chocolate wrapper. Put it on the flyer, fire and watch it as it's devoured. That's his experience, verse 14. Verse 15, his strength is like a pot's herds, 
a broken ceramic on an archaeological site. He's shattered into pieces as his tongue sticks on the inside of his mouth, dehydrated, as his life ebbs away. Extreme violence, emotional terror, as he suffers this abuse, hounded, verse 16, pinned down, as they move in for the kill. Imagine this man turning up at um, the trauma units at the emergency room. Multiple fractures, bones broken, hands, arms, shoulders, pelvis, close to cardiac arrest, dehydrated, hands, feet, lacerated. This is a medical emergency. Get him into intensive care. Get the fluids into him. The morphine. He's dying. As good as dead, verse 15, you lay me in the dust. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. Of course they do. He's dead. Let's have his stuff. This is the suffering of Jesus. The cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama fabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The disgust, verse 7, they wag their heads. The ridicule, verse 18 and verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Mel Gibson attempts to portray it in his movie. But of course, the physical agony that Mel Gibson does depict isn't real and isn't the real agony, which is the emotional and spiritual agony on a level that we will never be able to grasp. How do we understand it? In some sense, the Trinity torn, the Son bearing the wrath of God for you. Luther, the heavy sufferings of Christ, as he agonized in the midst of terrors and divine wrath and death. Complete atonement you have made, and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owed. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. Of course, we have the cross in front of us, but you'd never have seen this in the ancient world in Rome. The cross was the most shameful sign in the universe. In fact, the word cross couldn't be mentioned in public. And when a judge was passing sentence in the court and sentencing the felon to death on a cross, he couldn't use the word. A coded formula was used. The Roman Emperor Cicero said, let the word cross never come to the eyes or nose or ears of any Roman citizen. Only the worst of the worst, the category A felon, could ever be crucified on a cross. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ goes there in obedience to the Father, in the most extraordinary degradation, emotional, spiritual, and physical agony. And as he dies at the cross, what happens is he bears all our guilt, shame, and the full judicial penalty that we must pay, he pays it for us in an exchange 
penal substitution. Penal for he's punished. Substitution because he takes it for us. This is how much he loves you. This is how much he cares for you. Whoever you are and whatever you've done is academic. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you have done. Because at the cross, Jesus takes it for us. Your shame, your guilt, your humiliation, your death. He goes to hell for us as he takes our place at the cross. The agony of the cross, abandoned by the Father. But the song doesn't end there. But with a second point, the triumph of the cross as the nations praise the Lord. Because verse 21b is the hinge on which the whole song turns like a door. The prayer of verse 21a, metamorphosis into the eventual answer of verse 21b as we move from present plight, verse 21a, rescue me, do you see, to the answer of 21b, you have rescued me. As we move from victim to victor, as the commentator James Boyce puts it like this, that the second half of Psalm 22 is a throbbing, soaring anticipation of the expanding proclamation of the gospel and of the growing triumph of the kingdom of God. It's as if we're at a musical concert, a, a Beethoven symphony, and we move from a minor key in the first half of the psalm on first violin to now a throbbing, triumphant major chord as the full orchestra with the trumpets and the brass and the, the string and the percussion all, all now come into this note of incredible confident triumph. And it's massive because the king's been heard. Yahweh has been faithful. He has saved his king. So if verse 1 to 21a is agonizing prayer, verse 21b to 31 is triumphant praise. And what now happens is amazing. As this song gets bigger and bigger and louder and louder as those singing the song, as it widens out. Look at this. Please look at it in the text because it's extraordinary. It starts with this man, this king, saying, I've been saved and praising God. But then we move in verse 22 to the congregation or the assembly. I will tell your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. The assembly here is the family of brothers. It's the Jews, verse 23, the offspring of Jacob, the nation of Israel. So the point is that because God's answered the king, now the whole nation of Israel will praise God for answering the king and saving them. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 25, the congregation gets bigger. As we move in verse 25 from the assembly to the great assembly, it's bigger, verse 27, because it's gone global. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. The king is saying, you've saved me. Then the nation of Israel is saying, you've saved us. And by the end of the song, 
The whole world is saying, you've saved us because it's gone global, because it is international. And by the way, look, verse 29, there's no racism, all nations. Verse 29, there's no classism. Those at the top of the heap and the wealthy, the prosperous of the earth are worshiping, and those at the bottom who bow down and go to the dust, and those who can't keep themselves alive, the patient dying in the hospice, they're included in the salvation. It is global, it is international, it is intergenerational. It is what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, that the whole world will be blessed. God has kept his promise. It will be told to a coming generation. They will come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet born. You know, it's like when you get a photo. This is, by the way, how we discover how self-centered we are. There are two tests two tests on how self-centered I am. First is, when you win an argument, uh, and, sorry, when you lose an argument and you repeat it, um, who wins it always second time round? It is me, isn't it? Okay, that's the first one. Second test about selfishness, when you see a group photo, what's the first little face you always look for? Family photo, wedding photo, school photo, whatever. Where are we in the psalm? Where's your face? Where's my face? And the answer is there in the text. A people not yet born. This is amazing. The king is delivered. The nation of Israel is delivered. It looks like the whole of the world is being delivered. And actually, a people not yet born are being delivered as well. For as he hung at Calvary, Jesus bore the guilt and the shame for everybody who would trust in him. From every generation, every part of the world, every socioeconomic class, every sin Jesus took as he died at Calvary for those who trust in him. And as the Apostle John looks at the very end of the book of Revelation and he sees 144,000, don't believe the Jehovah's Witnesses, who say it literally is 144,000. It's not. It's the Hebrew number for perfection, 12, times 12, times 1,000, which is the largest number in the Greek. So the number is perfection, all of old Israel, perfection, all of new Israel, times 1,000 for infinity. The point is, it's going to be an amazing day when we get there. As you meet people from every generation, age, tribe, language, nation, and tongue, all of us singing the same hymn, worshiping the same God, praising Him. And why? Because He has done it. His kingdom established at the weakest place, the cross, his crown made of thorns, yet through his saving death and triumphant resurrection, a salvation even to the ends of the earth. Verse 30, we are the coming generation, and now our task is simple. It's twofold, isn't it? Keep trusting this king, whoever you are and whatever you've done. Keep trusting this king of love, he died for your sins at Calvary, 
and he loves you with his whole heart. Keep loving this king and trusting him, and keep proclaiming the gospel, because this song is a missionary psalm as this gospel goes out to Israel, and then to the ends of the earth, and then to a people not yet born, which is, by the way, one of the reasons we're so passionate about youth and children's ministry and really do need a full-time paid youth and children's pastor as soon as possible because this gospel is a gospel of salvation to the end of the world and to the end of the age. Let's sing of it as we rejoice in it. In the words of our next hymn, we stand to sing. <laughs>